Uh, he also serves with Rob McElvoy on the external advisory team, along with Adam and I. It's just really helpful when there are just two uh, pastors to have a third and fourth person. And so he speaks into our budget and, and speaks into the season of our church and, and what we're thinking strategy-wise. And so very, very thankful for Nick, and I'm excited for him to be preaching this morning. Uh, but first, um, Lila is going to read scripture from John 1. Our scripture reading for today is from John 1, 29 through 42. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After, he com- after me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, what are you, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him for that day, for it was about the tenth, the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. <laughs> this is God's word. Well, it is really a privilege and an honor and super fun to be here. So I feel like I have been a fan of this church for like eight or nine years and have never been able to come on a Sunday because of other responsibilities. And like almost to the day, three years ago, I was scheduled to speak mid-March 2020. And I had a sermon written, everything, um, but well, you guys know what happened then. Uh, And it's interesting to say that March 2020, and everyone in this room knows why I wasn't able to speak, right? I don't need to fully explain it. I don't need to say COVID happened in March 2020. Uh, I don't need to say there's a global pandemic, that all the churches were closed. You just know when I say March 2020 and I say I couldn't come and speak, you have context for what that means, right? But if you were to fast forward, if we were to fast forward 100 years from now, and if someone was watching a video of this, like I'm sure they will, or listening to a recording or in some kind of reality pod, you know, experiencing this, and I said that same intro, March 2020, they probably wouldn't understand what I meant, right? They wouldn't understand the context. If I was talking about March 2020 as a kind of a code or a summary for something, a person watching 100 years from now would have probably no idea what I mean. They don't have the context. They don't have the lived experience. And so it wouldn't mean the same thing, right? Now, imagine if we were to fast forward 1,000 years or 2,000 years from then, from now, and imagine that that person would understand what we're saying. They, they wouldn't, right? It would, it would take some context to get. And so when we read the Bible, there's a problem like this every time. As we sit here today reading a text, uh, like what we just heard, uh, 2,000 years later, 
And some of the original meaning of that text is probably lost on us. We miss things that the original audience instantly would have heard and understood. Uh, there are phrases and ideas that the original reader or hearer of that text would have quickly understood that we just kind of breeze past, that just like gloss over us and we don't even hear. Uh, we don't always have the context and the background to fully understand the meaning of something That's, that was written 2,000 years ago. But what I love about humans is that we're fast, quick learners. Uh, we can catch up quickly and understand a lot if we're just given a little information and context. Uh, so for instance, two weeks ago, I don't think I'd ever heard of Silicon Valley Bank. Like, I, maybe I had, like, I'd heard the words, like, I, I, I know, I, but it really didn't mean anything to me. Like, I know what Silicon Valley is, like, I, I think, but I'm not so sure anymore. I know what a bank is, um, but I didn't really have a significant, like, pairing of those words together. So Silicon Valley Bank, didn't really know, didn't really, maybe if I heard about it, just didn't register. But over the past couple weeks, I've learned a lot about Silicon Valley Bank. Maybe you have too. I uh, learned about its investors. I uh, watched a clip of their CEO speaking. Uh, I know about what companies had what, how much money deposited with them. Uh, I learned about Silicon Valley Bank's investment strategy and why it became a risky strategy. Uh, I talked to a number of friends who were impacted by Silicon Valley Bank, maybe their employer or whatever. But it was really something that was just like, oh, that's an interesting thing happening here in Silicon Valley tech world, which I don't, which I don't totally live in. Um, that's really interesting. They, and they meant more to me, but they didn't mean anything personal. And, and then a couple, like uh, maybe like a week ago, we get a call from our like finance team at Orchard Group, and they're like, hey, just a heads up, like we don't have any deposits with this Silicon Valley bank, but our payroll provider has a relationship with them, and so we're going to overnight you guys' paychecks. Hopefully they get there in time. And this thing, this idea, this bank thing that I had no context for, that I learned about and thought, well, that's interesting for someone else, all of a sudden became interesting for me and learned quite a bit about. And I think that's interesting. So when we come to our text today, John 1, what does the phrase Lamb of God mean to you? Did we even hear it when it was read? Lamb of God, it was read twice. When you hear that phrase, what do you think of? Lamb of God. Anyone think of the heavy metal band? Was there anyone that that registered for? Okay, nice. YouTube assignment for everyone. Lamb of God. If you've been around church or studied the Bible, you probably have some sense that a lamb is a significant motif in the Bible. Maybe it's connected to sacrifice. Maybe it's connected to this time of peace when a lion will lay down. Maybe those things are familiar with you. Maybe you're reminded of the Passover. Uh, if you have a Jewish background, you're like, oh yeah, lamb of God, I, I know what that is. Maybe you have no idea. Like Maybe you're like, no context, no clue. That's totally fine too. But when John the Baptist says these words, lamb of God, about Jesus, when John calls Jesus the lamb of God twice in the text that was read, Everyone who heard that phrase, that title, would have instantly understood what he meant. They would have understood the meaning and the incredible significance of those words. And so what is vaguely familiar to maybe some of us would have been instantly understood by that audience as like provocative and incredible. And so on two consecutive days, John sees Jesus and he says, I'm going to reread these verses just a little bit. Verse 26, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then, verse 35, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. And how do we know today that the audience then knew the significance of those words, of that title that John calls Jesus Lamb of God? Well, if you read the next verse, verse 37, the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Catch that? John identifying Jesus as the Lamb of God was the critical bit of information that they needed to leave John the Baptist and begin following Jesus, to leave everything and go follow him. And so when John the Baptist sees Jesus on that first day and he calls in the Lamb of God, he says of this person, Jesus is the person who takes away the sins of the world, 
that's like a huge statement to that audience, like a really significant claim. Uh, to the Jewish people and that Jewish audience who were steeped and grew up in the scriptures and traditions of the Old Testament, they would have understand, understood sin to be like the biggest problem in the world. Like the, the, the biggest thing that is wrong with the world is sin. They would have understood sin to be the cause of all the suffering and the difficulties around them. And so to say that someone takes away the sins of the world, of all, all of the world's sin, would have been an incredible promise. That's someone that would be worth following. And so two of John's disciples, they do exactly that. They leave John the Baptist, and they go and follow the person that John pointed toward them towards Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And so my hope and prayer this morning is as we examine this concept, the Lamb of God, that we might experience a similar revelation, that we might look at Jesus and see what John the, the, uh, John the Baptist saw, that we might see what those disciples saw, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, a man worth leaving everything to follow for the rest of our days, Jesus, the Lamb of God. Let's pray. God, I'm so thankful for Citizen Church. I'm so thankful for the opportunity to be here, to sit under your word, and to allow your spirit to speak to us through it. God, I pray today that you would reveal to us who Jesus is, that as we look and examine and, and turn and and as like a, like a diamond, your, your word, and we look at it, Lord, that you would give us a new revelation of Jesus' identity and a new application to what he means and who he is means to our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we really get into talking about the Lamb of God, I want to just talk for a few minutes about sin. Um, modern people today probably don't see the problems of the world as intimately connected to sin or as a result of sin. We say that's like a fair statement, like your coworker doesn't think what's wrong with the world and they just sin, right? Probably not uh, what they're going to say. It's probably not even a category most people have for what's wrong with the world. Uh, but that said, sin is a really critical concept that's really important for us to understand uh, if we're going to make sense of this idea of Jesus as the Lamb of God, if we're going to make sense of the story of the Bible, uh, if we're going to understand why it mattered that Jesus is called the Lamb of God and why these disciples would leave everything to follow him. Uh, biblically speaking, there are a few ways you could define or look at sin. Uh, probably the most common way is to see sin as breaking God's laws. So God, the creator of the world, made the world perfect. He established certain laws and principles that are a reflection of his character. And so sin, whether it's the very first sins in the Bible, what we have with Adam and Eve, or it's the sins of God's people, Israel, uh, that they commit in opposition to the laws he gave, or if it's even the sins that we commit today, knowingly or unknowingly, all of this could be seen as a kind of breaking of God's laws. Uh, there's a fourth century theologian, Augustine, he defines sin like this. He said, sin is a word, deed, or desire in opposition to the eternal law of God. Some of those laws that we break are things that are clearly articulated in the scriptures. Uh, some of those laws are things people intuitively know, even though they don't know or agree with the Bible. Okay, so you don't, you don't uh, I just want to make a little, even if you're like, I don't know how to believe about the Bible and all these rules and laws, well, you might still be able to grasp on the idea of sin here. Uh, because all of us are created by God and made in his image. And each of us has an internal kind of moral code that we live by. Each one of us, our neighbors, our parents, our friends, everyone has some kind of internal, intuitive moral code that we live by. And sometimes we live up to that code, right? And sometimes we don't. Uh, as a Christian, I would argue that, uh, some, um, that, 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 some, that part of our role as a Christian is to sort of become more informed by God's laws and God's, and God's rules. Uh, to, to like, if you imagine like a Venn diagram, we're like, here's what I live by and what I think matters, and here's what God lives by and who's matter, and we have this little Venn diagram. Part of a job, our job as a Christian is to let God's part of that like overlap more and more with our own, right? 
And so, but regardless of that, if you are a disciple of Jesus or not, each of us has an internal moral code that we attempt to live by. And part of that code aligns with the moral character of God. And when we fail to live up to those ideals that we share with God, maybe it's uh, loving our neighbor, like most of us probably think that's an important thing, uh, telling the truth, uh, being a person, uh, an agent of justice in the world, caring for the poor, being a person of integrity, telling the truth, not stealing. Whenever we fail those ideals that we hold, that also God holds, when we're breaking our own law, we're breaking God's law and that overlap, and that, that we're sinning in that moment. That is sin. But sin isn't just law-breaking. That's probably the most dominant way, or the most common way you've probably heard about sin. But sin isn't just that. Uh, it's deeper than that. Uh, biblically speaking, sin is also idolatry. Maybe you've heard of sin talked about in that way. It's worshiping and centering one's life on something less than God. Sin can even be like a really good thing that we turn into an ultimate thing. I think that happens a lot with us. We could center our lives on something like uh, providing for our families or seeking meaning and purpose and pleasure for ourselves. Those are good things. Uh, we could be trying to make a positive impact on society. All of these could be good things, right? But none of them can handle the pressure of being ultimate, like most important thing in our life pursuits. And when they become ultimate things, they become a kind of sin or they lead to sin. Uh, providing your, for your family is good, right? That's a good thing. We should all want to do that if we have a family, uh, until it comes at the expense of someone else's family, right? Or what happens if your spouse leaves you, takes your kids? What happens then? Is your life without meaning because that ultimate thing is gone? Or if you're seeking to make a positive impact in the world, if your highest uh, pursuit, uh, what if that happens to fail? But if you're, the good you're trying to do in the world or education, economic justice, healthcare, a compelling product that's going to help people, uh, what happens when that fails to have the kind of impact you imagined or has a different impact, an additional impact that you didn't anticipate? You know, how many tech entrepreneurs uh, start off with the hopes of making a better world with their products? Like you think about Facebook and Twitter and like 10 or 15 years ago, the hopes and like the promise of these to bring democracy to the world and free speech to all people and connect the whole world. You have to think that like Mark Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey like have some sleepless nights about what they brought into the world, right? The unintended impact of this product that they thought was going to be good. Nothing but God can stand under the pressure of the weight that we put on it, those ultimate things. Everything else is a kind of inadequate idol that will eventually fail us if we build and center our lives upon it. I love how Tim Keller uh, connects this idea with the definition of sin. He says this about sin. Sin isn't only doing bad things. It's more fundamentally making good things into ultimate things. Sin is building your life and meaning on anything, even a good thing, more than God. Whenever we build our life on will drive us and enslave us. Sin is primarily idolatry. It's a different angle, a different look at sin, right? So sin can be understood as breaking God's laws. It could also be understood as a kind of idolatry where we center our lives on something other than God. But lastly, sin could also be understood as sort of us taking uh, God's rightful place, of uh, putting ourselves where God deserves to be. Uh, if God is the creator of the world, if he's the designer of all reality, his rightful place in the world would be a kind of benevolent, good king, the rightful ruler of this world. If uh, this world is his, if he made it, he set the rules. If there's like a metaphorical throne, God should be the person who sits on it, right? But what if someone denies that reality? 
What if someone seeks to usurp or challenge God's rightful place as the king of all kings? I don't know if any of you guys are Black Panther fans, uh, but if, what if like a Killmonger rises up, you know, and challenges the T'Challa of the universe and says, as like Killmonger does in the movie, if you're familiar with it, is this your king? And he beats his chest, nah, I'm your king. The idea of a usurping king, it's found in Game of Thrones, Lord of the Rings, Shakespeare, the Robin Hood, the old cartoon. Does anybody remember that? Anybody remember the old Robin Hood cartoon with the foxes, the animals? They talk of the song about Prince John, the phony king of England. We know these kinds of stories, right? Where an illegitimate king tries to take the place, tries to assume the throne when the true king is away. And that concept is like a biblical concept as well. But interestingly... That usurping, villainous, false king is each of us. When we live as kings of our own stories, lords of our own lives, we are those false kings, those false queens, those unjust usurpers attempting to dethrone God, defining reality and morality on our own terms, substituting ourselves into the place where God alone rightfully belongs. And this, too, is sin. Uh, I love uh, this Pastor John Stott, um, one of my favorite, my youngest kid is named after him. Uh, he explains in this, my, probably my favorite, you can have a favorite definition of sin, uh, and this incredible definition of sin, uh, in which Stott really gets at the heart of what sin is, but also kind of points us towards why it matters that Jesus is the Lamb of God and, and, and how God deals with the problem of sin. He has this amazing quote, Stott says this, For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. So sin is breaking God's laws, it's worshiping false idols, and it's putting ourselves in the place that God alone belongs. But amazingly, to our great benefit, God sent a solution to our sin problem, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. Too often we miss the significance of this because we're like those people who are, uh, haven't heard of Silicon Valley Bank or 100 years from now who haven't heard of March 20. We miss the meaning, in March 2020, we miss the meaning of Jesus' title and identity. Uh, we fail to behold, to look, to see. And it's not until we really wrestle with the gravity of our own sin that we begin to understand the personal significance that it means for Jesus to be the Lamb of God. And so for the remainder of our time, I just want to look at four pictures in the Bible uh, that we have that are designed by God to teach us about Jesus, the Lamb of God. Uh, Each of these are pictures that tell us something about Jesus and what it means that he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Uh, The first three images we're going to look at are things that John the Baptist's audience would have totally known. They would have been like, yes, that's a reference point I get. And the last one is something that they would have found out later uh, on after Jesus had died and been resurrected. So the first point we're going to look at today, the first kind of picture image that we have in the Bible of a lamb that points us to Jesus is Jesus, God's provisionary lamb. Jesus, God's provisionary lamb. Uh, In the book of Genesis, there's this really interesting story about Abraham, uh, who is the kind of patriarch and founder, if you will, of the Jewish nation. Uh, Abraham, he's called to leave his like, kind of pagan ancestors and follow God to this unknown land to become the father and the kind of creator of this new nation, this people who are chosen by God. And he's in the intention of these people is to bring about some blessing to the world. So Abraham's called to start this new nation that's going to bring some incredible blessing to the whole world. And Abraham, he obeys God's call. And while following this call uh, to become this father of this new nation, he and his wife Sarah remain childless for decades, like a really long time. They don't have any kids. So they're supposed to leave, have, a, have a, a nation come out of them, and they don't have any kids. So it's kind of a conflict, kind of a problem. 
But eventually, through this miracle of God, uh, Abraham and Sarah become pregnant and give birth to this child, Isaac, uh, whom God, again, promises that an entire nation will come through. And so it's this massive surprise and challenge that comes out of nowhere that God calls Abraham to take Isaac, who is a child or a teenager, and sacrifice him on a mountain. And so I want to read what God says. This is Genesis 22.2. He says this, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And I can't imagine, like, the internal conflict that Abraham is facing. Like, God is calling him to do something awful, unthinkable. Uh, This beloved child that God has miraculously even given him, God is now asking him to sacrifice in this, like, pagan way. Uh, This this must have made no sense to Abraham. I mean, it would have felt totally contrary to who he had experienced God and who God had revealed himself to be. But in spite of these doubts, and I'm sure this turmoil, Abraham trusts God and he acts in radical faith. And this is the kind of story in the Bible that really only makes sense in hindsight, because God is actually testing Abraham's faith. He doesn't actually want him to sacrifice his son. Uh, Something else, something bigger is happening. Something bigger than Abraham and Isaac is being choreographed by God. God is beginning to tell a story of a sacrificial provision, of a special offering that he himself and he alone can provide. God is revealing that he will provide an appropriate sacrifice, something that humans can't do on their own, a lamb that will replace a man. Let me read to you. I'm going to continue. This is Genesis 22, verses 6 through 14. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, and he laid it on Isaac, his son. He took in his hand the fire and the knife. And so they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. And he said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And so the both of them went together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then Abraham reached out his hand, took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. Here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram, caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided." And if you were to study this text, there are like so many interesting similarities and allusions and connections between this story and the story of Jesus' crucifixion. Uh, too many details to go into today. But the broad strokes, like the most important takeaways, would be that God himself does what he asked Abraham to do, but prevented him from doing, but didn't allow him to do. God gives his son as a sacrifice. God provides a lamb, a ram, which is just an adult lamb, in the place of a man. And so when John the Baptist calls Jesus the Lamb of God, he is like evoking this story. This is one of the first things that they would have thought of. And he's showing that over 1,500 years before the nation of Israel ever existed, God had been preparing the people to understand the significance of Jesus. He had written Jesus' identity into their very history, into the story of their most significant ancestors. God had been preparing the people for a Lamb that he alone can provide, Jesus, God's provisional Lamb. Okay, second image we're going to look at today is Jesus, God's Passover lamb. Jesus, God's Passover lamb. 
If you were to fast forward in the Bible a few hundred years, come to the story of Moses and the people of God. They are now slaves, uh, enslaved to the Egyptian people. Uh, a, a big nation has come out from Abraham, but they've become slaves in Egypt. And God has come to Moses and told him to free his people. If you've seen the movie, you, you, you're familiar with this. Uh, to go to Pharaoh in Egypt and to ask him to let, for, ask him, uh, to let God's people go. And through a series of miracles and plagues, Pharaoh, he kind of waffles back and forth. But ultimately, he refuses to let, to let God's people leave Egypt. And so in this kind of final act, God tells Pharaoh through Moses that unless he lets the Israelites go, that God will punish Egypt and that God will kill the firstborn child in every household. And so stubbornly, unconvinced that God will do this, Pharaoh refuses. Pharaoh doesn't believe God, and he puts the whole nation at risk. But God makes this amazing provision for the people of Israel, and really for anyone who would trust him in faith there. God instructs the people to take a sacrificial lamb without blemish, to kill the lamb in the evening, and to paint the blood over the doors of their homes. You can imagine uh, someone paints this blood of the sacrificed lamb over the door of each of their homes. And they're to stay in their homes because that night, God is going to come and judge the people of Egypt for their sin and for their slavery of the Israelites. But what's amazing is when God comes to the homes of these people that have the painted blood over their doorposts, he's going to pass over them. He's going to pass over their homes. He's going to spare their children. They will be safe because of the blood of the lamb. Again, another super intense story, but one that also points us to a greater orchestrated reality, that God is telling the people of Israel another chapter in the story of the Lamb. Each year after this moment, the Israelites were to commanded to remember this event. It was like an annual holiday to sacrifice and to eat a lamb as a way of remembering how their ancestors were saved by the blood of the Lamb. This is Passover. And so when John calls Jesus the Lamb of God, every Jewish person there, his disciples, anyone that would have been listening, uh, they would have thought about each year from their earliest memories with their families when they celebrated Passover. They would have remembered a lamb that was slain to protect the people of God. And it's amazing that during Passover, on the night that the Jewish people would have killed this lamb, that that's the night that Jesus is crucified. And the symbolism is totally unmistakable. I, we, we might miss some of it, but if you were there at that time, the symbolism has just been totally uh, you, couldn't, you couldn't miss it. Uh, later New Testament writers make this connection explicit, like when they say, this is Paul in 1 Corinthians, he says, uh, 1 Corinthians 5, 7, for Christ, our Passover lamb, had been sacrificed. Jesus, the lamb of God, slain. His blood poured out to protect those who trust God in faith. For those who are under his blood, who are under him, they too will be safe from the wrath and the judgment of God. Third image and picture I want to look at today is Jesus, God's atoning lamb. Jesus, God's atoning lamb. After God's people have left Egypt, uh, God gives them instructions to start a new nation and to build up a new people. And embedded in this nation's like founding documents and setup is a series of laws that are designed to teach the people about God and his character and, and also to um, teach a watching world about what God is like. And so uh, there's a tabernacle that's established, and there's a temple that's established. There's this sacrificial system that's set up in place uh, where people can make atonement for their sin by offering God certain sacrifices. Uh, there's a system set up with all kinds of laws that if you were to read the book of Exodus or Leviticus, if you do one of those like one-year Bible plans, and you get into like, this is a lot of laws about sacrifices, huh? Um, you read about it there. And, but one of the real key components of this building of a new nation and this sacrificial system is not only that there are like clear laws, like don't do X, don't do Y, uh, but there are also clear ways of making individual reparations for when those laws are broken. 
So there are reparations like horizontally with other people, like if you do something wrong like this, you can do this to make it right. But there are also sort of vertical reparations that are commanded with God. Uh, so when people sin, there are corresponding actions that God instructs the people uh, to do in order to become right with others and corresponding things that they need to do in order to be right with God. Uh, the Old Testament laws establish these systems and requirements. And the system is tedious, it's difficult, uh, especially as it relates to becoming right with God after one breaks one of God's laws. Uh, the Bible details appropriate sacrifices and offerings that need to be made. Uh, and, and these correspond to like the financial capacity of the people. So the, there are poor people and wealthy people that are making different kinds of sacrifices. So both are making a genuine difficult sacrifice. Uh, goats, lambs, birds, bulls, all kinds of sacrifices are required to be made to atone for sin, to get back into right relationship with God and with others. Uh, atonement, if you're unfamiliar with that word, uh, it's a biblical word that, um, that basically that means like that, uh, that, that, how can I say about atonement here? Um, it, it's basically a word that's used first in the Old Testament when Noah is painting the ark and he's putting tar on the ark and he's covering over the cracks. That's the word, the Hebrew word for atonement. And so the idea there is that something needs to be covered over to be made whole. And so with atonement, you get this idea that something needs to be done to reconcile, to bring together, to unify, to make whole something. And this entire system is designed and taught and to remind the people of these realities of God, to teach them that in order for some things to be made right with him, there needs to be some kind of atonement, some kind of covering over, some kind of making right so that forgiveness and reconciliation and like wholeness are made possible. And most importantly, though, and, and this is the part that's often missed when we read the Old Testament, is that all of this is preparing the people to understand the significance of Jesus and what God will eventually, finally, and fully do through him and his death on the cross, a final and complete sacrifice of atonement that, that truly and completely covers over the sin of the world. Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Nowhere is this more clear in the Old Testament than, than this thing called the Day of Atonement, uh, which was a required annual practice in uh, Israel. Uh, it's this time when the entire nation of Israel would stop working and they would participate in kind of a national day of repentance. Uh, on the Day of Atonement, uh, the highest-ranking priest would, uh, in, was instructed to take two goats, uh, goats, lambs, ewes, rams. You might have already wondered this. Sometimes talk about lambs, sometimes talk about rams, sometimes talk about goat. In the Hebrew world, this is like a medium-sized animal, and they're all kind of the same category. Um, he would sacrifice one of these goats, uh, take some of its blood, and go into the holiest, like most special part of the temple. Uh, and this was the only time of the year the priest was allowed to do this. Like he was never allowed to do this except this one time of the year. And he goes in, he's supposed to sprinkle some of the first goat's blood, symbolizing the sacrificial death that was needed to make atonement to cover the sins of the people. And then there's the second goat that the high priest is to lay his hands on. And he's lay his hands on the goat's head. And it's a, sort of this moment where he's symbolically transferring the sins of the people onto the second goat, which is then sent out into the wilderness. Let me read to you this passage from Leviticus 16 that kind of describes this. It says this. This is Leviticus 16, 20 and 22. And when he was made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting in the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron, that's the high priest of the time, shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel, all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. 
Again, so much is happening here. So much is happening here that puts together and symbolizes and teaches us about the significance of Jesus and what his sacrificial death accomplished. We have this high priest who is making atonement for the people. We have this substitutionary sacrifice that dies in the place of the sinful people. Uh, we have uh, this blood covering uh, over sin. We have a transfer of the guilt of the people to a guiltless carrier uh, who's going to take on the sin, the shame, the guilt, this entity that's going to bear it all and cast out but leaves the people forgiven. And all of this, all of this is like this preview of the real thing that is to come. It's a signpost pointing to a greater reality, a reality that came when God sent his son, Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. The Old Testament system was a symbol pointing to something better in the future that was to come. And later New Testament writers, they're going to conclude this about the Old Testament system, uh, how these laws and these rules, how all of it points to Jesus. So I want to read to you this text from Hebrew, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. Uh, and this is a really great text for understanding the Old Testament. It says this, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And then verse 12, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Citizens Church, behold the Lamb of God, who died a death we deserved to atone for our sins, to take on himself our guilt, our shame, to remove the sin that separated us from God and from one another. Fourth and final picture we'll look at today is Jesus, God's conquering lamb. Jesus, God's conquering lamb. Same author of the book of John that we've been reading today, uh, we've been looking at, also wrote the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. And in that book, we see symbolic images and language. We see this picture of the end of time, the end of all times. And in that book, one of the central metaphors is the Lamb of God. Uh, 28 times in the book of Revelation, we see Jesus as the Lamb in the book of Revelation. But this time, what's interesting is the Lamb is not a picture of sacrifice and death. Uh, it's a picture of a victorious Lamb, centered in the throne room of God, worshipped by angelic beings, uh, by every living creature on earth. They are worshipping the lamb whose death has conquered sin, whose death had conquered this great enemy, Satan, whose lamb, who, the lamb whose death conquered death. It's a very different image of the lamb. Uh, a resurrected, conquering lamb of God who's made all things right. And so if you think about the Bible and the biblical story, if sin is the reason behind everything wrong in the world, if, if Satan is this being that tempts man towards sin, if death is this terrible, like worst consequence of sin, then the conquering lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world is worthy of giving up everything to follow, is worthy of all of our worship. Behold the lamb of God. That's the picture that the New Testament ends with. It's this picture we see in Revelation, the end of time, a gathering of all of the people who have followed the lamb, who have followed him and have been saved by him, who have been covered by his blood, who followed him to the end. And so I want to read from Revelation verses 7, 9 through 17. It's a longer passage, but I want you to imagine this, if you will. Maybe you can close your eyes and, and hear this and think about this. This is John describing a vision he has of the end of all time. 
He says this, And after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne, and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne, and they worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The question that begs to be asked when you consider Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is, will you be there with the Lamb in the end? Will you be at that image you just imagined? Will you respond like John's disciples responded, who encountered the Lamb of God and left everything to follow him? Will you be counted among that great multitude that we just read about who followed the Lamb and who endured to the end? What's amazing is that we're all invited. We're all invited Revelation 19, 19 records this really interesting exchange, and it says this, And the angel said to me, the angel speaking to John, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Friends, you are invited to behold the Lamb of God, to behold Jesus, to really see him to see how he takes away the sins of the world, to see how he conquers sin, Satan, and death, to witness how he makes atonement for your sin and mine, makes reconciliation with God and with one another possible, to see how he will one day make all things right, to see how he will one day wipe away every tear. To behold the Lamb of God is to see not only a title, it's not only to see an image or a metaphor, but it's also to see and to hear an invitation. God inviting us as well to follow Jesus for the rest of our days to join in the worship of the Lamb. Let's pray. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the richness of your word that gives us a compelling picture of the meaning of Christ's life and death and sacrifice and resurrection. God, I pray today that as we move into a time of response and communion, that we would behold the Lamb of God, that we would see him slain for our sin, atoning for our guilt, taking away our shame, and making reconciliation and wholeness with God possible. In Jesus' name, amen.